Welcome to the Mom Manual. Motherhood doesn't come with instructions, but it should. We are on a mission to highlight ordinary moms doing extraordinary things to build the ultimate mom manual. Every week, I have the distinct honor of speaking with women about the lessons they've learned and the inspiration that got them to where they are today. Join us for a conversation that will spark creativity, provide actionable tips, and celebrate the ordinary and extraordinary moments of motherhood. The Mom Manual starts now. Hello everyone, Tara Williams here with the Mom Manual. I have an amazing guest for you guys today. Dr. Kelsey is a pediatric audiologist, which I repeated three times, audiologist. And that means the study of hearing. Yes, Dr. Kelsey? Yes. So I get that question a lot. What is an audiologist? And I describe it as I specialize in diagnosing and treating hearing loss. It's essentially an optometrist, but for hearing. Yes, instead of the eye for the ears. Well, welcome to the podcast. We are thrilled to have you. We have never had a podcast like this talking about hearing. So if this is something you are wondering about, if you have a child that maybe you're thinking, maybe not hearing or just not listening, this is the podcast for you. So let's jump in. Dr. Kelsey, tell us how you got into this in your background. Yeah, absolutely. So that's definitely a common question that I receive when I tell people what I do, because it is very niche. So people are often interested in in how I got into the field of audiology. And I always say it's not necessarily something that I dreamt of as a little kid. I didn't wake up and say, I want to be an audiologist when I grow up. But throughout college, I was studying communication and science disorders, because I really love connecting with people. So I was sort of drawn to that field. And within that major, you sort of study either speech language pathology or audiology. And how I became interested, like I mentioned, I love connecting with people. My husband will tease me and say, one of my hobbies is talking on the phone because I'm always chatting with friends or family. I'm always communicating and connecting with people. So throughout college, as I learned these different communication disorders and sort of the barriers that they held for people's quality of life, especially from a hearing perspective, I really got interested in learning how I could help that population of people. Because ultimately, you know, your hearing is the gateway to your brain, which allows you to communicate and connect and build relationships. And that's what's most important to me. And more specifically, I was drawn to working with children and pediatrics because I love working with families because in those initial days, months, or years of diagnosis, there is that fear of not being able to connect with their child. So I love to be able to provide support and education, information, and different options to to sort of help build that communication and that connection with others around them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This just brought me back to when I've had, I have four children and each of them, they give that little hearing exam in the hospital and the eye exam. And I'm always holding my breath that they're not, they can hear, they can see, you know, just the basic things when, when your babies are born. But as you said, it is, it's critical. If you can't hear, you can't connect. So what do you do Dr. Kelsey on a day-to-day basis? Are you in a clinic now? Do you do like online things? Tell us about that. So I do a little bit of a combination of the both. So I do work full-time clinically in a hospital, and I actually help oversee the newborn hearing screening program. So as you mentioned, all four of your kids probably received a hearing screening at birth. So I do a lot of the training and education for our screeners, and then also for families who are seeking more information. And then I do a lot of the diagnostic appointments. So if your baby doesn't pass the newborn hearing screening, then they would follow up with me as the audiologist. 
And I would do the testing to either confirm that the hearing looks normal or confirm that there is indeed a hearing loss and help help families develop a treatment plan. So I'm often seeing babies actually in the neonatal ICU, or I'm seeing them in the clinic for, for those hearing tests. But, you know, as you mentioned, you have four kids and your kids had that hearing test in the hospital. And I think I've learned that, you know, there's so much information to help you prepare for having a baby. There's classes, you get to tour the hospital, but I feel like in my own experience that the hearing screening is often very overlooked and it's not necessarily even discussed, or sometimes they'll take your baby in the middle of the night, they'll do a hearing test and you didn't even know that A, that was going to happen, B, why it was going to happen. And then if you receive, uh, you know, a result that your baby referred or did not pass the screening, you're kind of flooded with this wave of emotions. Because you know, you're in the first few hours of life with your newborn, and then someone's telling you that there might be something wrong, or there might be something unexpected going on. Oftentimes, that can be a very overwhelming feeling when it's really just the first step. I always like to encourage parents that if your baby doesn't pass the screening, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a hearing loss or that they're they're deaf, but it does mean they've been referred for more testing. And the best thing we can do in that situation is identify it early. So the fact that we've already kind of taking that first step is really a great sign to to gather more information to do everything we can as a team to help you and your baby. Well, and, and how common is it that, are you calling it hearing loss because you never had hearing where babies are born without the ability to hear? How common is that? That's an excellent question. So it's relatively common in the sense where on average, two to three out of every a thousand babies are born with hearing loss. Mm-hmm. So on the grand scheme of things, it's not, you know, super common. However, it's common enough that before the newborn hearing screening programs were implemented statewide, this is a state mandated program across the country. Mm-hmm. What would happen is babies would be born with hearing loss, and they wouldn't be identified until they were, you know, around ages three or four when they were significantly delayed in their language development. So what the research shows is we can identify it within the first, you know, few days or weeks or months of life, then we can act early and we can basically minimize any risk that that baby or that child may have in their development. And that's where we've sort of gotten this push nationwide to be able to screen every baby. Okay. So we're at the hospital, the hearing comes back, you know, your baby can't hear for whatever reason you do additional testings and it still says baby has hearing loss. Can you develop the hearing after, or what do you do there? That's a great question. So there are two different types of hearing loss, two different common types of hearing loss. One is known as conductive hearing loss, and that's more of a temporary hearing loss due to possibly fluid or earwax or or something blocking the sound from coming through that can sometimes be improved. The second type of hearing loss is sensory neural hearing loss, and that's a more permanent type of hearing loss that can't be improved with medical or surgical intervention. So in that case, we would typically recommend hearing aids or other hearing devices that would be appropriate for that child. Got it. Got it. So, so a baby can actually use hearing aids. Absolutely. Yeah. Babies can be fit with hearing aids within the first few weeks of life. The earlier, the better is what we say. That's amazing. So for the infant who is not, it's not caught that they can't hear, you're really not discovering that, like you said, until they're older and they're not communicating back because at first babies more or less just kind of lay and look around and might not even make eye contact for several months. Right. Yes, absolutely. And it is possible you know, it is relatively rare, but it is, I have seen it that children can 
pass that hearing screening in the hospital at birth and then develop hearing loss, you know, down the road and then kind of come back to the audiologist because they're concerned about their speech and language. And then we find out that there's, you know, that their hearing has changed or that there is now some level of hearing loss. So it's definitely important to kind of look out for some of those developmental cues, which, you know, as an infant, it's so hard to tell because they're pretty much asleep, especially if you have several other kids and you have a noisy house at baseline, you know, sometimes those kids quickly learn to sleep through that kind of noise. But just some early indications are if if a door slams, there's some loud noise, an eye blink or a reflex or a startle response is a very common response in, in infants and babies. And then as they get older, they'll learn to kind of turn their head towards sound. They'll start to babble. They'll start to, you know, learn their name or respond to their name. Or and then, you know, once they become, you know, one, one and a half, they'll kind of learn to follow commands, you know, can you get the ball? They'll reach for the ball. Those are certain auditory developmental uh, milestones that happen in early childhood to look out for. So I always encourage parents, if you ever have concerns, follow your gut. Your gut is like the strongest thing you have. And it never hurts to get a hearing test. We can test a child's hearing at any age from one day or a few hours of life, you know, until at you know, age two, three, four, five. It's non-invasive. These tests are reliable. So it doesn't hurt if you have concerns to to get more information. No, that's that's such great news. It, it you know popped into my head is my brother has um some sensory processing uh, different, you know, I guess I guess you technically say he's on the spectrum, but when he was in preschool, he would like shout at all the other kids. So he was talking really, really loud. And they actually thought he had just had some type of hearing loss where he couldn't actually hear. And then they did further testing and kind of realized, you know, what it was is nothing to do with his ears. You know, it's a, it's a piece of everything we do, right? Like if you can't hear, then you can't really interact. Uh, myself, my husband always says to me, you're talking so loud. I'm from Boston. And he thinks I'm always screaming when I speak, but I'm like, I don't know. I just talk loud. I also feel like I can't really hear well. So just shifting away from kids and even into adults, I mean, some people have better eyes and they wear glasses. They're not blind, but the glasses help. Do some people just have poor hearing quality, like with eyes? Yeah, absolutely. So when we test hearing, I think a lot of people, when they think about hearing loss, they think about basically deafness or not. But right. similar to vision, your hearing is, you know, falls onto this huge spectrum. Right. I always like to explain to to people when we test hearing, it's kind of like we're testing the keys on a piano. You have several keys on a piano. You have your low bass tones, your mid pitches, and your high pitches. Right. If one of those piano keys is, is dead or out of tune or not working properly, the whole song and melody kind of sounds funky. So right. hearing can be very similar that if you maybe have hearing loss just in the higher, higher pitches, that does impact your quality of sound and, and what you're hearing. And especially in certain situations like background noise or mm -hmm. when someone's like shouting at you from the other room and you can't see them and there's a wall in between you, it's definitely going to impact impact the individual that maybe even has just a little bit of hearing loss. So exactly like what you were saying, when it comes to vision, hearing is a, a similar spectrum. Okay. Now on the other end of the spectrum is my husband. I call him a super, super ear, I guess, because everything bothers him. Like the sounds are so loud. And I've always wondered, is that because he, his hearing is so sharp 
Or is that because he too has some kind of sensory processing and like the loud sounds like really bother him? I mean, how much of a, of an overlap do you see of parents coming in and it's like, no, 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 this is actually more a sensory thing than actually hearing. So I do see that quite often, especially, um, I think there's some stages where it's developmentally appropriate for kids to kind of be like afraid of loud sounds. Often parents will say, oh, when I turn on the vacuum or the blender, like my five-year-old covers yes. their ears. Yes. And I think that is a normal sign. However, if it becomes like loud sounds are becoming debilitating to your child, then that's something that we definitely want to dig deeper. So mm-hmm. as an audiologist, when we specialize in hearing we specialize with what's happening sort of on the periphery or, or the outside of our ears as a function. Right. And then when you would think about how we process sound, that's more of a, of a central sort of neurologic function. Mm-hmm. So for your husband, for example, we could say, and my husband's kind of the same way. He's very sensitive to loud sounds and he yeah. says, I talk loud, all, all of the same yes, things. Yes. He does have fantastic hearing. However, there is, you know, a deeper condition called hyperacusis where you could be very, very sensitive to certain sounds. And that's more of a central processing issue Mm -hmm. versus a hearing issue specifically. So it really bothers him when we're in the car with the kids. And even we were, we were driving home from church on Sunday And it was like, they were really well behaved, which is not always typical. And then in the car, we have four kids. They weren't fighting. They were just like giggling and really not even that loud. And I'm thinking as a mom, like, this is a dream. My four children were well behaved at church. We're driving home and they're giggling. And he's sitting there, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Because it is like so loud for his ears. And I think it's because we're in a small confined space where it almost like echoes off. So that's more, you think, a processing thing or just he hears really well. And so it's like extra loud. You know, I think it's hard to say, but it could be, you know, a combination of that. So you bring up a really good point. Being in a confined space, kind of shifting back towards infants specifically, infants' ears are very, very small. Mm-hmm. So when when we hear a sound that's loud to us, it's even louder to them because their ears are so small. So imagine if you take a megaphone and you're standing in the closet and you're yelling in that megaphone, yeah. that it's so loud. But then you take that same megaphone at the exact same volume and you step outside, it's not nearly as loud and it's a little bit more tolerable. Mm-hmm. So you bring up an excellent point that when you're in an enclosed space, sounds that typically maybe aren't loud or aren't bothersome are going to be just generally louder. And to some who are, are sensitive to noises, And this is more of a personal anecdote rather than like a scientific one, but I find myself getting kind of irritated by loud sounds if I'm like hungry or I haven't slept well. All of those like irritability factors kind of fall into place. You know, at work, there's lots of alarms. And and if I like haven't eaten breakfast, I'm like, oh, that alarm is driving me nuts. But then I eat breakfast. I'm like, oh, it doesn't bother me as much. And I think that kind of goes into play of that central processing where sometimes your brain can just you know, ignore sounds that are bothering you. And other times when your irritability is up, some of those sounds can be so, so frustrating. So that's Mm -hmm. sort of the difference between what's happening on the outside from your ears as a function to what's happening as that sound is traveling up through your brain and you're sort of processing everything around you. Today's episode was brought to you by Dreamland Baby. I want to introduce you to a product that hundreds of thousands of parents use to help their baby sleep the Dreamland Baby Weighted Sleep Sack. Hi, I'm Tara Williams, host of the Mom Manual and founder of Dreamland Baby. When my son Luke was six months old, he was still waking up every hour and a half. I was completely exhausted, frustrated, and at my wits end. Sound familiar? 
my solution to create a gently weighted sleep sack that babies can safely wear to help them feel calm, fall asleep faster, and stay asleep longer. The award-winning doctor-approved Dream Weighted Sleep Sack and Swaddle features our proprietary CoverCom technology, evenly distributed weight from your baby's shoulders to toes to help naturally reduce stress and allow your little one to feel relaxed and sleep soundly. If you're struggling to get your baby to sleep for longer stretches and go down easier, you're not alone. This product was a game changer for my son and can be for your family too. And right now we've got a special discount exclusive to mom manual listeners. Use code MOMMANUAL15 at checkout to get 15% off site-wide. Isn't it time for you to invest in rest? Okay. And I want to shift gears a little bit. We will put this on YouTube. So anyone who is not, can't hear us. What I'm showing is a nightlight sound machine. So by the time this episode airs, we will have this live on the market. I'm super excited about it. So Dr. Kelsey is going to talk to us a little bit about these sound machines that seem like now they're everywhere. And it's so interesting I'm the founder of Dreamland Baby. We sell primarily weighted wearable blankets and swaddles. And this is the number one thing our customers have asked us over and over and over. When will you have a nightlight sound machine? And they're truly everywhere, right? So there is a lot of information on the internet about, are they safe? How close should they be? How loud should they be? Is it good to sleep all night? Should you limit it to a third, you know, 30 minutes, 60 minutes? So I'd love to hear from your perspective, all the things you know about sound machines, the do's and the don'ts, any, anything, all the things. Absolutely. And this is a, um, a very common question that I received because exactly like you said, they've sort of blown up and everyone is using a sound machine now. So I think there's still sort of like a newer thing where I know our parents or my mom's like, I never used a sound machine and you slept fine. But now it seems like something we have to have for our babies to sleep comfortably. So there's definitely some do's and don'ts. And we can kind of run through that from a hearing standpoint. And the first and foremost, most important thing is please make sure that the sound machine volume is not too loud. And by too loud, I mean, you really don't want it to exceed about 50 to 60 decibels. The reason that's important is kind of back to what I was mentioning, infants and babies ears are really small. So what's, you know, kind of loud to us is going to be even louder to them. And they're, you know, developing their auditory system. So we want to be really mindful about protecting their hearing. There mm -hmm. is something called noise-induced hearing loss. Oh. And that's hearing loss as a result of being exposed to loud noise over a significant period of time again and again and again. So that's something that you'll typically see um, maybe in adults who have an occupation around loud noises, like working on a construction site or oh. they're in a band when they're... Um, constantly exposed to those noises. But for infants, if we are turning those sound machines on full blast, putting them right next to their ear for 12 hours a night, we're definitely um, kind of exposing them to the risk of noise-induced hearing loss. So I think sound machines are wonderful when used safely. And I love, love the sound machine that you guys came out with because it kind of meets all the parameters to be able to yeah. optimize safe use because yeah. they definitely serve a fantastic purpose. You know, I think I live in California and the houses are close, close to each other and, you know, it can be a busy street. So to use a sound machine to block out external noise, I think is a really good use to keep your baby sleeping comfortably. So in that case, I would recommend 
making sure that the volume doesn't exceed 50 to 60 decibels. I would also suggest putting the, the sound machine about six to seven feet away from the crib. You really don't want to put it right in the crib, right next to the baby. I see people kind of clip on sound machines on strollers yeah. and it's like sitting right next to their little one's ears. And I would advise against that. So I love how yours is like a surface machine and it sits perfectly on the nightstand. So it wouldn't really make sense to put it in the crib. So I love that it looks good on like a nightstand or a changing table or wherever you want to put it. And then checking the volume level, keeping it about six to seven feet away from the crib. And then I love on your sound machine, how you have the timer setting. So you have 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. That is fantastic because like I said, with noise-induced hearing loss, that is the result of being exposed to loud sounds for several hours. So eight, yeah. nine, 10, 11, 12 hours. But with the timer settings that you have on your machine, being able just to select the 30, 60, 90 minutes is going to be enough, hopefully, to soothe your baby to sleep or to block out any external noise while they're falling asleep. And then you don't have to be concerned of, am I using this properly? So I love that you have the timer settings on your sound machine. Oh my gosh. We do so much with research and like medical community and like pediatricians have reviewed this and all the things. So I'm so glad we're getting the stamp of approval from an audiologist. Um, I was thinking when you said, you know, your mom had said my, none of us slept with sound machines. So my sister was a horrible sleeper, like worst of the worst. And my mom used to get a glass jar and put a, a hairdryer in the glass jar and so it was like a white noise that was like humming or they would have like the washing machine run. Like the, she did all these different things, which is funny. Cause I'm like, that is a sound machine. Like, yeah, absolutely. It is, you know? So I think back in the day, those creative and, and desperate moms looking for sleep and to get their baby just to, to kind of lull down were, were making their own, but it is awesome that these are so readily available and they're everywhere. I mean, you can get one for us reasonably priced. There's like super cheapy ones on Amazon. So there's an option for everybody with these, which I think is amazing. I was actually in our research, we were doing, um, looking up the ways, you know, just really to best educate our audience on, like you said, six to seven feet away, the 50 to 60 decibels, there is different apps you can get on your phone, super easy. And you can actually just turn it on and then measure the audio on it. And what's really cool is if you have the audio and it's next to the baby, like it's louder, but then if you keep the audio there and you just move the sound machine away, you can get it a lot lower. So I I love those tips. Another tip we saw that I was like, wow, that is going extreme was to put one sound machine in the room by the door shut the door and then put another one in the hall. <laughs> I was like, I think that's our new marketing campaign. Everybody needs to, but I'm like, why would anybody need to do that? It's almost like a double barrier of sound. I or- mean, if you're having like a cocktail party, you know, in your kitchen and your yeah. baby's asleep upstairs and your home is, is louder than normal. It does kind of create that double barrier of, right. of that sound coming coming through and potentially waking that up. But I love that you brought up the point of the sound apps because when I was lucky enough to try out your sound machine and when I was testing it out, I'm like, okay, is it audiology approved? Let me see how loud this is. And I did the same thing, just download it. If you go to the, um, the app store and search sound level meter, there's several free apps that come up. And I just quickly was testing out the different settings because you have lots of different settings, which is awesome. And then doing the same thing. And it's an ama- it's amazing how 
much the sound, how much softer the sound gets when you step a few feet away. So I think that, you know, just kind of reiterates that point of you definitely don't want to have the machine in the baby's crib right next to them. Um, but yeah, I did the same little tip and it takes like 30 seconds or a minute to, to test it out. So if anyone has a sound machine at home and you're hearing this and you're concerned, oh no, have I been using it, you know, unsafely, I would definitely recommend um, downloading any type of app and, and just checking out the levels or, and if, if it is too loud, simply just moving it a little bit further away from your baby will we'll do the trick. It's very satisfying because you feel super scientific. I mean, you're, you're a doctor, so probably not for you, but as a, just a normal person, I was like, Ooh, I'm so scientific with my app and my levels, but you make a great point. So even if you have one at home, that is something off Amazon that might not be the right decibel, like don't fear, you don't have to throw it out, just move it further away. Another thing that has come up and this is, this is not really completely to hearing, but a lot of the sound machines now have tech and apps. And I know there's been a lot of chatter on saying, I don't want any of this kind of radio frequency around my baby moving through their nursery. What's your opinion on that? You know, that is a really good question. And one that I haven't really thought about too far in detail, but I kind of am a little bit more conservative in the sense that if there's something out there on the market that isn't going to have that type of risk, then it's probably safer just to go ahead and and maybe choose the option that is getting giving off sort of less type of radio frequencies or any of those signals that are happening that you know the research just doesn't quite exist yet probably better to be a little bit on the simpler side than than risk having cuz like you said there's so many options out there so do we need the fanciest thing or do we just need something to to help our baby get to sleep yeah. Now, what about there is brown noise, pink noise, white noise? What do you know about those? So there has been some questions about what are the effects of sound machines on, you know, a child's auditory development mm, and yeah. where I kind of sit as far as auditory development, the sound machine is great. Like we said, to block out external noise and to sort of help soothe your baby to sleep. But when it comes to auditory development, I always encourage parents to create what I call meaningful auditory moments. So when we think about our child's auditory development, and it kind of goes hand in hand with their speech and language development, really birth to five are those critical language learning years. So I think it's super important, even with a newborn to carve out time for meaningful auditory moments. And that sounds like a mouthful for simply for something reading to your baby, talking mm -hmm. to your baby, singing to them, you know, playing, playing music at a safe level, and really making sure that they're kind of getting that direct engagement and that direct input to meaningful sound, because that's ultimately how they're going to learn. Personally, I don't know a lot of the research that says, oh, white noise is better than pink noise or rain noise is better than a lullaby. I think it probably depends on your baby. And I think as long as those sounds are played at a safe level for a safe amount of time and your baby is sleeping, then they're happy and you're probably happy too. Because what I'm sure you know is that sleep is actually one of the most important factors to a child's development as well. So if they can get good sleep and then in those wakeful hours, they can also have meaningful auditory moments. I think you are doing great. And that sounds very complicated, but it's just, to, it, I think it's actually fairly simple is make sure your baby sleeps, make sure you sleep and then engage with them and have, you know, have fun moments together.
Yeah. No, I love that so much. I think of those commercials. I think they were run by the state of California and it, they are kind of sing songy and it says like reading, talking. I, I'm such a wide voice singing. And it was, it's basically saying like, if you do these things, just don't not talk to your baby. And I remember actually seeing those and panicking thinking, oh my gosh, I never spoke to my, when my kids were itty bitty right before they inter- interacted and they didn't say anything and they just laid there more or less. I, I wasn't like, oh, let's read a book together. Like it wasn't until they became interactive that I felt like I talked to them a lot. And then I was thinking, did I do a disservice because I wasn't reading to them or singing or talking, like really engaging while they're just, you know, laying or sleeping or doing tummy time and stuff. I mean, I was there obviously, but I, I felt a mom guilt that I could have done more or better, you know, as with all mom things we're all doing our best. (laughs) Right. I was going to say, you know, that mom guilt is real. And I know so many, there's like so many little things that can sort of like spark. Oh no, am I doing enough? There's actually a really interesting book out there. It's called 30 million words. And it talks about basically like the natural exposure that your child gets to language based on your household. So to your point, if you're not directly reading to your newborn every single night, it's okay. As long as in your house, you guys are having meaningful conversation around them, then that exposure is really, really valuable. And I think, unfortunately, some kids don't get that same amount of interaction and exposure, even just kind of coincidentally as it's happening, even if it's indirect. So even that indirect exposure is super valuable. So if you're not reading to your newborn, you're still doing a great job. You're still a great mom. You know, there's still lots of language learning opportunities, but those are just, you know, some simple ways that you can sort of help, help your child's auditory system develop as well as their, their language. And even like listening to music, I mean, there's there's a lot of ties between things like classical music and brain development, and that's through the auditory. Is there, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, so, you, you know, know, a lot of people- Outside your, your uh, little I bit. know, I'll, I definitely can share what I know, but I this isn't necessarily my expertise, but I know a lot of people will, you know, especially playing music during pregnancy, the auditory system where the ears develop at 20 weeks. So I think that's super valuable being able to expose your baby to, you know, peaceful sounds, even Mm. while in the womb. And so I think if that's something that, you know, as a mom, you're super connected to your baby, even before they're born. And, you know, you'll be able to see, oh, they move during this sound, or they rest during this sound. And if that carries through after after they're born, I think that that's definitely something that can, can really benefit them. But it all comes down to meaningful auditory moments. So sort of that classical music is known to help us focus and to sort of calm down and relax versus, you know, loud sort of chaotic, you know, very up and down sounds as far as like acoustic events, like doors slamming and things like that. That's a little bit more triggering to our nervous system that can kind of create stress. So especially, you know, Working in a hospital, we talk a lot about how can we support NICU babies or babies that were born premature. So if they were born at 30 weeks, their auditory system is still developing because that happens in utero. And now they're born to this very noisy world. That's a hospital with multiple babies, beeping, alarms, door slamming, several different nurses, doctors surrounding their bedside at all times. So 
at my work, I do a lot of education on how can we create a calming, soothing environment for our newborns, because number one, they need to sleep. Sleep is super important for development. And if we have a baby that's that's in a crib right by a door and every time that door slams, they are going to jolt awake that disrupts their sleep and ultimately disrupts their healing and growing. So it all kind of goes hand in hand. So I think, again, just creating those, you know, meaningful, peaceful moments um, for your baby and for your child, it's going to help them in the end. I love that so much because we have a philanthropy arm of our business where we donate our weighted swaddles to NICUs to help with those infants that are born with neonatal abstinence syndrome to just feel calm. It's a non-pharmacological solution, but I feel like we should include our nightlights or our, our sound machines rather to get that calming, soothing effect for the full NICU, right? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. We just um, sort of are in talks with the NICU that, uh, or the hospital that I work at on different solutions. You know, it's something as simple as these like paper towel, automatic paper towel holders that are right by the, the bedside. When you put your hand under that and trigger this loud sound, that can disrupt a baby's sleep. And we actually have on a lot of the cribs have the sound level meter there. So we can sort of check the spikes. And someone just sent me an email this past week. So I, I love that you bring this up, yeah. saying that they have iPads at the bedside. And a lot of the nurses will put a lullaby on the iPad, put oh. the iPad in the bed, but yeah. then they'll leave it, leave it on for, you know, eight, 10 hours. And so we're sort of working with that team to educate on what can an infant tolerate from an auditory standpoint, because a 32 weeker that typically would still be in the womb, isn't used to getting 10 hours of like Mozart. <laughs> so yeah. what is an appropriate amount of time and at what levels? And I think, like you said, your sound machines are, are fantastic. And I love that they have the timer setting on them and to be able to, you know, use that in the NICU, I, I know it would help so many babies. Okay. We'll connect after this and we'll get you guys some, some sound machines. So exciting. My background is in medical device, like market development and sales. So I spent all my time in operating rooms and hospitals. So I have such a heart for that space and just, especially NICU babies, even though I never had one, um, I was breastfeeding and pumping with two of my kids traveling literally Monday through Friday. So I would go down into the nursery because they have the best They'd have like the room that was dark with the couch and the professional grade pump and I'd bring my own stuff. And it was just such an amazing experience, but I'd always be right by the NICU and I'd, you know, chat with the nurses and you'd hear the baby cry. So I just like have such a heart for NICUs and I love that. So we will get you guys some for sure. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was super educational. I wrote down tons of notes for anybody who is thinking of, you know, sound machines. Now you have all the details on how to use them and anybody who is, you know, at that newborn screen, hopefully you have some more information and you don't go into that just completely startled like I did with my first baby. Dr. Kelsey, where can everyone find you? can follow me on Instagram at Kelsey Kirkov underscore AUD. Um, you can also catch me on my website, Kelsey Kirkov AUD.com, where I have several different blog posts. You know, my goal is really to help support parents of children with hearing loss, because as new parents, there's so much that can happen that's unexpected and overwhelming, especially when your child receives an unexpected diagnosis. I've been on the receiving end of you know, giving parents that unexpected diagnosis. And it just never sat well with me to say, this is what's going on. Okay, see you in a month without being able to provide really helpful, reliable resources. So that's sort of what motivated me and encouraged me to create my website, my blog. I offer educational consulting for parents who are, are 
currently navigating this journey, looking for, you know, an extra hand of support. And then if you ever have concerns about your baby's hearing or your child's hearing, like I mentioned, a hearing test can happen at any point. I have a guide on my website that's a guide to your child's first hearing assessment, because depending on what age your child is, you're going to want to come in prepared and have some tips and tricks so you can get the most out of that appointment. So yeah, you can find me there. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it.